Our scripture reading this morning comes from Jude, verses 14 through 19. It was about these that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, Look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. These people are discontented grumblers, living according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. But you, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you, in the end time, there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are worldly, not having the Spirit. Amen. Thanks, Kendra. I can take that. Good morning, church family. How's everybody doing? You guys awake? All right. Well, if you're new, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to have the opportunity to open God's word with you today. As a church, we have a very, very high value on having our people be grounded in the scriptures, that we, we really value the word of God and the impact that it has on our lives. And so we devote a significant portion of our gathering times to going through books of the Bible. And we love going through books of the Bible. We just finished the book of Leviticus, and now we are doing the New Testament letter to Jude, uh, from Jude, I should say. It's uh, short, much shorter than Leviticus. Uh, and we're able to move through it fairly quickly. And then we're going to start Advent here on the weekend of Thanksgiving. And then I uh, hope to announce pretty soon what we're going to do and tackle in the new year. But for today, just to give you a little advance notice, we're going to cover actually the majority of the book of Jude. Last week, we covered kind of the welcome and introduction. Next week, we're going to cover just the ending and the conclusion. And today, really, we're tackling the whole point of the book of Jude, which is Jude, the, the half-brother of Jesus himself, is writing a letter to a church to warn them about false teaching. And so we're going to tackle some false teaching stuff today. And so I would invite you to pray with me and pray for me as uh, we, we tackle this weighty subject, this weighty, uh, heavy sort of subject. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are grateful that you are the God of all truth. We are grateful that you have revealed yourself to us. And uh, though, Lord, we cannot know you completely because you are infinite and beyond, beyond compare, um, we can know you truly. And everything that we need to know for life and for godliness, you have already given to us, not only in the written word, but in the word made flesh, Jesus, the son of God. Lord, for each one of us today, would you help us to think clearly and to uh, exercise our minds? But Lord, even more, would you help us to have our hearts stirred with affection for Jesus, that we would remain close to him. Lord, guard my speech and help me to teach only that which is in line with the truth of your word. It's in Jesus' good name we pray. And everyone said, amen. All right, there's a, there's a, a couple of phrases. I, I bet you know these phrases. I bet you can actually fill in the blanks for me. So in sports, there's a saying, the best offense is a good defense, right? Seahawks should think about that sometime, right? Uh, the best offense is a good defense. Or, or a related saying in, in sports is defense wins championships, right? The idea in sports being, you know, anybody can score points, anybody can do the offense thing, but the thing that sets apart those really special teams, those championship teams, is a good defense. Okay, something more 
consequential than just sports. Sports is actually a fill-in for war. There's a saying, it often gets um, attributed to Sun Tzu who wrote The Art of War. You, it's probably not actually attributed to him, but, but here's the saying, okay? You've heard this before. Keep your friends close and keep your enemies closer, Right? It's a similar sort of idea that you're playing defense. You, you know, we, we all like to have friends and people we enjoy being around, but if you really want to win, particularly something in like a battle, you need to be able to think the way that your opponent thinks, keep them close so that you can outwit them. Today, we need to acknowledge the very deepest of all realities. This isn't sports. This isn't war. This is the deepest of all realities, that we as followers of the God of the Bible are engaged in a spiritual war. How many of you know that we are engaged in a spiritual battle? And there is no neutral. There is no Switzerland. And most every day and every hour of every day, you and I are tempted to fall into the wrong belief that we're not engaged in a battle. There is no war going on. But the scripture would tell us in places like Ephesians or places like uh, Second Corinthians that we are engaged in a battle of spiritual warfare and it is primarily a battle of beliefs. Lofty arguments, thoughts, Claims about truth. You and I are not engaged in battle against flesh and blood, but against what? Against spiritual powers. So as followers of Jesus, we have to be alert and we have to be awake to the fact that there is a war going on, there is a battle going on, and many times, a good, the best offense is a good defense. And in many ways, we are actually instructed to... Be, to be uh, wise about the ways of our enemy. You know, kind of a keep your friends close and your enemies closer. I don't actually think that the gospel writers would agree with that because we should actually be closer to Jesus than to Satan. But the point still stands, okay? Be aware of the enemy's tactics. And I will just admit from the outset, um, my, my personality type, just kind of the way that God wired me, I'm a very optimistic person by nature. I'm very future-oriented, and I'm a bridge builder by nature. And sometimes it is hard for me, just my own personality type, to really remember that there are people who would do you spiritual harm. And if left to their own devices, could actually lead to the eternal judgment of their hearers. It just doesn't fit into my kind of generally optimistic, I believe that, I know that that's true, but just the way that my mind works and the way that I'm like, I want to inspire you with the good news of Jesus. Well, today Jude's not going to let me. I'm going to inspire you with the good news of Jesus, but primarily today I'm going to warn you about the consequences of failing to know the enemy's tactics. Here's the big idea for today. Followers of Jesus need to be wise regarding the enemy's ways. So I'll remind you that last week in the opening of the letter, Jude, or Judah, reminded his hearers that they are called, they are loved by God the Father, and they are kept by Jesus Christ. That's where it all starts. That's who you are, that's your identity. Next week, we're gonna see that the whole point is that Jesus is gonna help you reach the end. So you don't need to be afraid or fearful. Jesus is going to keep you. But today, we need to tackle these false teachers, okay? So Jude is going to start out in verse 5 by reminding the people uh, maybe everything in the whole Old Testament, just real quick. It sounds like, oh, I've heard that before in Aaron's sermons. You do that. Just read the whole Old Testament real fast. Okay, here's what he's going to say. Verse 5, I want to remind you 
Although you came to know all these things once and for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their own position, but abandoned their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains uh, in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. In the same way, these people, these false teachers that I'm referencing, are similar to all these Old Testament stories I just referenced. They're relying on their own dreams. They defile their flesh, reject authority, and slander glorious ones. Yet, when Michael the archangel was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, some of you are like, I don't remember reading that in the Old Testament. And you're right. I'll explain in a minute. He did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people, these false teachers, these opponents of the gospel, well, they just blaspheme anything they do not understand. And what they do understand by instinct, like irrational animals, by these things, they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. They have plunged into Balaam's error for profit and have perished in Korah's rebellion. Holy smokes, there's a lot going on in this first little chunk here. He's going to Judah, Jude, the author. He's going to reference five, six, seven different previous stories to compare this current group of false teachers to convince you that these are bad guys. This would be like if I went to one of my kids and I was like, hey, don't hang out with this kid. This kid is Darth Vader. He's Voldemort. He, like, I just kind of went down. He's, you know, Unikitty after she turned bad or whatever. Like, I'm just using every story, every example I could think of to try to convince my kids to steer clear of a particular friend group, okay? So Judah's going to walk through a number of these. First, he references hard-hearted Israel from Numbers chapter 11. You might remember in the Exodus story through Deuteronomy and on into Numbers, the children of Israel that were redeemed out of slavery in Egypt, well, they, they weren't grateful. They weren't thankful for the redemption of the Lord, the provision of the Lord. And what did they do? They grumbled and they complained. And in fact, many of them ended up receiving judgment from the Lord because they did not repent. So he says these false teachers, they're kind of like the old hard-hearted Israel. Watch out for them. Second thing he references is fallen angels. Now this comes from Genesis 6. I, I will admit, I'm a little irritated that Jude didn't go in Torah chronological order. He jumps around. That's a me problem, not a Judah problem. Every word of the Lord is perfect and I recognize it as my own issue, but it does just bug me a little bit. So he goes from Numbers, he jumps all the way back to Genesis chapter 6, which references a story a much disputed story in the Bible where it says that the sons of God, these spiritual beings, these, these kind of divine angelic rulers that the Lord had as part of his counsel saw that the uh, daughters of mankind were beautiful and wanted to lay with them. And it said that these angels transgressed their proper boundary places and that uh, this, is, this is kind of getting deep in the weeds very quick, but you can read about this throughout Jewish tradition that the, the offspring of these sons of God, these supernatural beings and human women, they were called the Nephilim. They were a race of giants. 
And Jewish tradition, not necessarily scripture, but Jewish tradition teaches that when God wiped them out through the flood or when uh, Joshua and the children of Israel killed the giant clans by conquest in Joshua and, and, and further on, that their spirits, those unclean spirits, those, those mixed, you know, think Leviticus, like improper mixing of divinity and, and humanity, those spirits is where demons came from. A lot to get into. I don't have time for that. It's not the primary point to be made here, but the point that is being made is that these angels did not understand their own position. They didn't have a humble attitude. They didn't have a humble heart. They were desirous. They were sensual. They were greedy. And these false teachers are kind of like those fallen angels uh, that are transgressing their proper dwelling place. He then references Sodom and Gomorrah, which is from Genesis 19. And uh, explicitly mentioned here is the idea of sexual immorality. So there's now two different stories referenced that explicitly tie false teaching to improper use of God's gift of sexuality. Sodom and Gomorrah can be found in Genesis 19. You can read that story. Maybe one of the more well-known ones on this list. The fourth one that he references is the, the devil and Michael. Now, this is... Uh, from uh, an extra-biblical text called The Assumption of Moses. Now, this is where the book of Jude gets a little bit strange because uh, this is not a reference to actual can- canonical scripture, but to an extra-biblical story. Here's, what, here's how the story goes. Um, you can read in Deuteronomy that when Moses died... Moses did not get to go into the promised land. And it says in scripture, it says in scripture in Deuteronomy that the Lord himself buried Moses. It's kind of a special honor. Now that of course led to speculation over the years because the Jewish people didn't know where Moses' body was buried. So there was a lot of speculation over the years. Extra biblical writings like the assumption of Moses would start to kind of, uh, how you could say, imaginatively fill in the gaps. And so in the assumption of Moses, there is a story that God, (coughs) by way of Michael the archangel, sent Michael to do the burying. So God himself buried him, but but the assumption of Moses said, well, he sent Michael to do it because Michael would be an archangel or a servant of the Lord. And and then the devil showed up and the devil said, no, 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 I want Moses's body. And they got into a argument. And what Jude says is that, look, Michael didn't even just tell the devil off himself because the devil is a supernatural spiritual being, one of those, uh, you know, divine sort of beings that God created. And what Jude says is that Michael didn't even rebuke him himself. He said the Lord rebuked him. It's kind of this complicated roundabout way of saying these false teachers say things about spiritual beings that they don't understand. So he says these false teachers are just popping off They're saying things about angels. They're saying things about the devil. Not even Michael the archangel would do that, even though he could, because he himself is a high ruling angel, spiritual being. By the way, again, this this is one of those places that sometimes people get a little, their eye starts to twitch a little bit because like, well, wait a minute. Why is the Bible quoting something that isn't the Bible? Tom Schreiner, who's a scholar, very helpful in the book of Jude, he says this. He says, Jude's reference to a non-canonical book is puzzling for many Christians today. Did he believe the account was historically accurate or did you just cite it to make a point? It is difficult to be certain, but it seems likely that Jude believed the story was rooted in history. He gave no indication elsewhere in this letter that the traditions cited were unhistorical. 
Well, does that lead to the conclusion that the canon of scripture should be expanded? Or did Jude think the assumption of Moses was inspired? These are vexing questions, but we should not draw the conclusion from the citation from a book that the citation from a book means the entire book is inspired. Paul, after all, cited Greek poets and sayings without suggesting that the entire work was authoritative scripture, Acts 17, 1 Corinthians 15, Titus 1. Jude did not intend to put a canonical stamp on the assumption of Moses simply because he cited it. He viewed this story as true or helpful, or he believed it was an illustration of the truth he desired to teach. And again, the truth here is these false teachers do not have proper respect for spiritual beings, the angelic realm. Okay? And then lastly, number five, he kind of loops all together in verse 11. He says, they've gone the way of Cain, Balaam, Korah. Uh, you guys you know, know the story of Cain, where Cain is you know, the, the, the murderous brother of Abel. He's violent. Uh, Balaam is an interesting story in Numbers chapter 22. Uh, Balaam is uh, kind of a prophet for hire. This is the one where the angel shows up and the donkey talks to him. It's a very fascinating story in Numbers 22 and 23. But the point of Balaam is that Balaam was going to go do prophecy just for money, not because he was actually getting, you know, uh, uh, tr- not because he actually believed what he was saying, not because it was truth from the Lord. It was just, oh, pay me. I'll do it. And then Korah, Korah, you might remember from number 16. We actually referenced Korah in our Psalm series over the summer, but Korah is the one who usurped authority, said he wanted to be in charge of the worship in the tabernacle and was swallowed up by the earth and went directly into Sheol. Okay, so question. Does Jude have a high opinion of these false teachers? This is a pretty serious list of opponents. Oh, but just wait, he's not done. Verse 12. These people are dangerous reefs at your love feasts. And I want to pause for just a brief moment here. Later today, after the service, we are going to have a potluck. In the first century, they called them love feasts, okay? I want to encourage you, let's just stick to the term potluck later this afternoon, okay? Uh, <laughs> it's far too easy for that to be misunderstood by those who uh, aren't participants. The idea is, hey, we're going to have a feast. We're going to share in the love of Jesus, okay? There's nothing more nefarious going on, but it basically was the practice of a regular meal together. The followers of Jesus would get together, would share a meal, kind of informal communion, and sometimes they would celebrate formal communion with broken bread and wine, like we're going to do in a little bit here, okay? But he says, they're dangerous reefs at your love feast as they, as they eat with you without reverence. They're shepherds who only look after themselves. They're waterless clouds carried along by the winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead and uprooted. Got away with words. They're wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. Just really quickly to summarize that. A moment ago, Jude said that these are people that rely, overly rely on their imagination. It is clear, Jude is not against imagination. He's very imaginative. But what he's saying is that imagination needs to be tied to something true. So he uses the analogy of a dangerous reef, right? Um, I've, I've, it's been a while, but growing up in Alaska, I used to spend time on a boat. My grandpa would take us fishing or we'd go do, you know, various fishing trips or been, you know, out 
crabbing with my brother. And, and the, the thing about a reef is it's, you don't see it. It's kind of hiding underneath the surface. So you're going along thinking you're just having a grand old time and then boom, you hit something and now it's disaster and your boat is ruined and you're in the water. Very, very dangerous. So a reef is, is this hidden danger. Or, or selfish shepherds, he calls them, which calls back to the prophet Ezekiel, this idea of shepherds are supposed to feed the sheep and take care of the sheep. And these are just shepherds who are hirelings. They're just doing it for the money. They're just there to take, not to give. He calls them waterless clouds. I like this analogy, waterless clouds. So you got to remember in the ancient Near Eastern world, and even to this day, many parts of the world, when you see a cloud in the sky, it's a promise of life. I know that we in the Pacific Northwest are like, I would love some waterless clouds every once in a while. Just a nice, thin, wispy cloud. But, but remember, in a desert climate, in a dry desert climate, oh, there's a cloud. Water's coming. We're going we're gonna to live. We're going to have crops. It's going to be okay. And then all of a sudden, this, this cloud just doesn't do anything. He says, that's what these false teachers are like. They overpromise and underdeliver. They're promising you spiritual life, but they're just empty. He calls them dead trees, late autumn. You just keep waiting, late autumn. You know, the tree ought to have produced some fruit by now. Nothing. Foaming waves. This is another one I like, foaming waves. You ever go walk along the beach and you just see that slime and grime that is left behind by the ocean? What is that? Fish spit? Like, what is it? I don't even know. It's disgusting, whatever it is. And that's what Jude is saying. He's like, these people, it's like they're foamy waves and they're shameful deeds. Just leave this grime that make everyone feel yucky and defiled. And then wandering stars. You know, in, in a world before GPS and, and, you know, the kind of maps and, and cartography that we enjoy today, the main way you would navigate was with the stars. You know, you're navigating your, your ship, you're, and, and if you have a star, it's got to be this fixed point, and you can know that it's a, 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 a reliable guide. He says, these are just wandering stars. They change all over the place. Again, you're seeing, Jude does not like these false teachers. And he said, we shouldn't have been surprised. He said, it was about these that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, look, The Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against them. Are these people godly? This is not a trick question. He just said ungodly like five times in a row. Again, this is Jude quoting from the book of First Enoch, another non-canonical work. This is a direct quotation from First Enoch. Um, all the things I said just a moment ago about the assumption of Moses are true here as well. Jude is viewing at least this line as a reliable thing about the truth. And he's, he's, he's using it to make the point, we shouldn't have been surprised. There have always been false teachers. And the prophets have always warned us to be on our guard against people who with their smooth speech trick you, though they are very ungodly. Verse 16. These people are discontented grumblers, living according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. But you, dear friends... Remember, again, this was predicted. Remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord, Jesus Christ. 
The apostles told you in the end time, there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are worldly, not having the spirit. Um, I'm going to put a big giant list up on the screen all at once here, because as I went through and reread all the way through the book of Jude, uh, there's this list of all these warning signs. Ungodly. Let me just read this. They're ungodly. They're sensual. They deny Jesus. They are sexually immoral. They rely on their dreams. They defile the flesh. These people reject authority. These people are blasphemous. They're greedy. They're irreverent. They're fruitless. They grumble. They're led by their desires. They have arrogant speech. Flattery, it says, flattery scoffing, divisive, and worldly. Here's here's what's so interesting to me. When I think about refuting false teaching, or actually in most like Bible schools, seminaries, um, if you went to a uh, apologetics class at a church, we've actually done apologetics classes at our church in the past. So much of what is taught is Here's how to recognize the substance of the argument, you know, versus the truth. Now, this person says this about, you know, the divinity of Jesus. And this person says, and the Bible says this about the divinity of Jesus. And we end up arguing about propositions, about ideas. And in fact, in my experience as a pastor, even just as a, as a Christian and a member of a church, I often will have people say things to me like, well, I'm, I'm not a theologian. I don't have a degree. I don't have a master's degree in, in the Bible. And, and I can't study and I can't understand all those things. And I don't know the difference between premillennialism and postmillennialism. And I don't know the difference between Nicene Christianity and Marcionism. And I don't know the difference between, you know, infralapsarianism and supralapsarianism. These are the kinds of things that just people come up to me and say all the time. I'm joking a little bit. But, but the, the substance of what it is, right? I, I, don't, I don't have a mind. I don't understand all these little arguments and all these things. Do you find it interesting that really throughout this entire letter, Jude is not interested in getting into the nitty-gritty of the theological subpoints? What he says is, watch out for people like this. This is the fruit of their lives. This is what they look like. They're divisive. Divisive. By the way, one, one real brief caveat because it's coming up next week. There's a big difference between genuine followers of Jesus having genuine discussions and differences of opinion about various issues in the Bible, right? The return of Jesus. Does it come before the millennium? Does it come after the millennium? Or if you're correct like me, we're already in the millennium, right? Genuine follow. That was a joke, okay? Genuine but it actually wasn't, but it was. Uh, <laughs> we'll talk afterwards. Genuine followers of Jesus can look at issues like speaking in tongues or, or various you know, church leadership structure. We can say, oh, well, I see this in the Bible or I see that in the Bible. And genuine followers of Jesus can have honest to goodness discussions about what's the right truth about various issues. But there are certain things that really start to rise to the surface as first tier important issues. This is not good faith discussions between genuine followers of Jesus. This is people who do not have the spirit. They are not saved. 
and they're making claims about Jesus that will lead to the harm and the destruction of people. And what do they look like? Well, they look like they're divisive. They like to see different groups of Christians divided from one another. They rely on their dreams too much. Jude's way of saying they just make things up. Well, the the God I worship would never this or that. The God that I know is, is like this. Based on what? They reject authority. They're they're incredibly blasphemous and arrogant and even flattering with their speech. The one that jumped out to me this week as I was studying and praying and preparing is the idea of scoffing. Um, Scoffing, again, is not maybe a word that we use as much in modern vernacular, but just this idea of scoffing, uh, I just think of it as this. That's scoffing. There are entire podcasts by so-called Christians that are nothing but an hour of scoffing at Jesus, the scriptures, and followers of Jesus. And if you want me to name names, I will in the parking lot afterwards. But I've known some of these people. There are people that I have known personally that have devoted weekly airtime or podcast time to just scoffing. Ha ha, aren't Christians idiots? Ha ha, look at all the problems the church have. Go read the entire book of Proverbs. has not a single good thing to say about scoffing. And look at what comes up multiple times here, this idea of sensuality or led by desire or sexual immorality. Friends, so much of false teaching and heresy just boils down to someone saying, I just want to sleep with whoever I want. One of the things that that people will scoff about Bible-believing, seeking to be faithful followers of Jesus is, man, you Christians are obsessed with sex. I don't know. I I wasn't the one that put a woman in a bikini trying to sell a hamburger on my TV. Seems like advertisers and the culture at large and every magazine and every grocery store seems obsessed with sex. And it seems like most of the people who I've known who have wandered away from the orthodox teachings of the scripture, it usually starts with themselves or someone they're close to saying, ah, but I just, I just want to sleep with so-and-so. I just want to use my body in this way. Ain't no new problem. If we're dealing with it now, they were dealing with it 1940-odd years ago. False teaching, if I'm reading Jude correctly, and I think I am, has a lot less to do with the the propositions of the things that are said and a lot more to do with the desires of the heart and the body and and a heart that is just arrogant before the Lord and says, you're not in charge, I'm in charge. Ah, Jesus or my desires, I choose my desires. N.T. Wright, biblical scholar, commentator, says this. He says, he, Jude, is clear and explicit about the twin dangers the church now faces. Dangers which we can hardly hear about without realizing that this letter is very contemporary. Like, this is very relevant to us. This is not just them. This is us too. On the one hand, he says, there are people transforming God's grace into licentiousness. That's the desires of the body. Just do whatever you want. On the other hand, 
They are, quote, denying the one and only master, our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. Here's what, here's what Tom Wright says. Find people today who are saying, God loves everyone exactly as they are. So everyone must stay exactly as they are, doing all the things they want to do because God is so full of generosity that obviously he wants them to do that. Find such people and you found those of whom Judah is writing. Find people today who are saying that Jesus is one religious teacher among others, one way of salvation among others, that there might be a variety of paths up the mountain of which Jesus' path is only one, that it's important to not make exclusive claims or will become arrogant. Find such people and you found those of whom Judah is writing. Who's in charge of your life, your mouth, your body? I just, I just, just not to belabor the point, but false teaching isn't as much about the false teaching. <laughs> oh, sure it is. I, I mean, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that ideas don't matter and truth isn't important. But what Jude says is, yeah, don't, don't get into the weeds of the argument. Watch for these warning signs. Now, what's the solution? The solution is in back, back in verse 5 where Jude says, now I want to remind you that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and also destroyed a group of those who did not believe. (laughs) Okay, two things about this. First of all, go read the book of Exodus. You will not see the name Jesus anywhere in the book of Exodus. But Jude, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, yeah, my half-brother was there all along. Just to think about this, like this is so wild. But this is what we call a redemptive historical reading of the text. Jude goes back and he looks at Exodus. He says, oh, Jesus was there the whole time. Maybe not by name, maybe not the full picture, but, but he was there, the angel of the Lord, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that led them out. The rock that gave them water in the wilderness. It was all Jesus the whole time. And it was all pointing forward to his death on a cross when he, the rock, the real rock of ages, was split open. He was cleft for us and blood and water poured out of his side that we might be cleansed and forgiven of our sins. It was Jesus the whole time. And he said, I want you to know that it was Jesus that saved the people out of Egypt. It was Jesus that saved the people that said, yes, I will paint the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of my house. I will place my faith in the saving power of the one true God through this sacrificial lamb. It was all pointing to Jesus. But do you see that Jude also says there was a judgment on those who did not believe This is one of those images and metaphors of the gospel. There's a lot of different ways to talk about the gospel. The Bible uses a lot of different imagery, right? Um, We have the imagery of debt forgiveness, that you have been canceled a great debt. That's a beautiful portrait of the gospel. Or we have the imagery of of a, a father adopting a child into a family. We sang about that one last week. You have the the marriage imagery, right? A husband marrying a wife. You have all the agriculture and farm imagery of, of, you know, the gospel being like these seeds that are planted and they grow into something that's life. But did you know 
that the actual word gospel, the Greek word euangelion, around this time when the New Testament was written, the most common way that that word was used was in a warfare context. A king would go out to battle and before, you know, modern media and communication and all that sort of stuff, you would rely on a, 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 a evangelist, an evangelist to come back and bring you a report about what happened. So all of a sudden, you got somebody up on the, on the city walls. It's been weeks, maybe months. You have no idea what's happening. You know, what, what, how's the battle gone? What's happening? And you see someone riding up, and they're riding real fast, and they're, they're coming up, and you're waiting to hear from this evangelist, the evangelionist, to say, what happened? And they would say, the king has won a decisive victory. The enemy is defeated. The battle has been won. Now get ready. He's on his way back. Now, that gospel would be good news if what? If you're on the side of that conquering king. But what if you were on the side that voted for the runner-up? Not that you voted for kings back in the day, but you get my metaphor, right? What if you had sworn allegiance to a different lord, to a different king? All of a sudden, that good news is not such good news, is it? It is the news of a victorious warrior conquering king who is on his way back and you have one chance to surrender. (laughs) I had an Old Testament professor once who said, yeah, you could kind of frame the message of the gospel as surrender or die. Not my go-to metaphor. Not one that I often do. And the reason why is I think that there's a lot of the turn or burn and repent or perish stuff that can get into manipulative sort of stuff. But friends, hear me clearly. There is a day coming when King Jesus, the one who crushed the head of the serpent, the one who not only died, but rose again from the dead to prove that he is the Lord and master of all. There is a day coming when every person will stand before him. The conquering king is on his way back. Will you surrender? Will you bow the knee? Will you say, he is Lord, I am not. I put my hand over my mouth like Job because I dare not speak uh, out of turn. I, I submit the desires of my flesh to him and I say, you're the Lord, you're the master, you're the king. He's the conquering king. Will you bow the knee? We don't, do, we don't do phony fear tactics at this church. But we do not shy away from the reality of the message of the gospel when it says surrender or die. So, many of you are like, wow, very uplifting message today, Aaron. Thank you, really appreciate it. What do I do with that? Particularly for those of you who are already, by God's grace, followers of Jesus. There has been a moment where you, you said, I don't want to die. I want to surrender. I will die every day if it means I can live for eternity. Praise God for that. If there's anyone here who has not yet surrendered or bowed the knee to Jesus, today is the day. And much of the application from the book of Jude itself is actually coming next week. So we'll go into greater detail on application next week. But for today, let me close with um, 26 brief, no, I'm just kidding, four brief thoughts. The first one is this. To be on guard, you need to learn the warning signs. Okay? That list that I put up, and there's others, 
Yes, you need to learn the truths and the propositions and the theology, but even more importantly, you need to learn the warning signs of those who do not honor Jesus as Lord. Watch out for those who scoff, those who are worldly, those who are sensual. Number two, take false teaching seriously. Okay, take false teaching seriously. It's like spiritual carbon monoxide. It's very stealthy. Very stealthy. But before you know it, like a, like a reef, right? It's under the surface. That's oh, no big deal. What's the big deal? And then boom, shipwrecked. One of the greatest heartbreaks, not just of ministry, but of life, is watching people who I have known and loved walk away from the faith. Take false teaching seriously. Number three, learn how to rank beliefs. This could be an entire sermon all on its own, but let me just simply say this. Not everything that could be said about the Bible and God and theology is of the same importance. So, you know, I mentioned things like the divinity of Jesus, his death, his resurrection. These are like top shelf, turn the knob up to 10 sort of importance. I also mentioned things like how exactly is the return of Jesus going to work out? The, the, that's a little bit lower of a priority. Jesus will return. That's a top tier issue. How the millennium and the timing's all going to work out? I don't know. See, what fundamentalists do is they take every single thing and they turn the knob up to 10. Everything is a super important issue and I will fight you about everything. This is what makes it so that you don't want to hang out with that person. But the other side, these false teachers, what we might call more on the liberal side today, everything's a one. You can believe what you want. You can believe, I can believe it's all, whatever. It's amazing to me, particularly around matters of sexuality, how much that kind of language is used. Well, you know, we just agree to disagree. Jude just put that into a top shelf gospel category. You need to learn how to rank beliefs. We're not a, we're not a brick wall and we're not a jellyfish beanbag either. Right? Lastly, honor Jesus as Lord. Bow the knee to Jesus as Lord. Again, there's a lot of ways we could speak about Jesus our Redeemer, our Savior, our big brother, bride of Christ, the, 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 um, the groom to the bride. Even as our friend, Jesus himself said we could call him friends. Amazing. But make no mistake. He is Lord. And at the name of Jesus, the conquering victorious king, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's the Lord. He's the one in charge. So don't get that twisted. Exodus 15 says this, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. And Paul, picking up on that theme of warfare in 2 Corinthians 10, says, although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. Since the weapons of our warfare, we're not, we're not against the flesh. We're not fighting humans. We're not trying to beat people up or conquer them with the sword. No, our weapons are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. You know what we demolish? Arguments. And here it is. Every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God and we take every thought 
captive to obey Christ. Friends, we are in a battle. King Jesus has won. Bow our knees to him as Lord. And even now, as we prepare to come to the table, we are being invited to the table by the conquering king. (laughs) What a privilege it is to get to dine with him, the Lord and master of all. Lord, we bring our hearts to you now. Ask and pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to be aware of false teaching and even even more so maybe, Lord, just to be aware of the, the markers of those who participate in that. Lord, I ask and I pray that even now as we eat and we drink at the table, as we participate in this meager feast of love, Lord, that you would help us to be nourished for the spiritual battle that is ahead and that we would not grow weary and we would not lose heart, but we would stay dedicated and devoted to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.